I began a little bit before, actually before diagnosis, but certainly after diagnosis with experimenting with putting other work out there that I didn't share very much, like particularly my visual art. I kind of just put stuff up all around the house. <laughs> I mean, I decorate my house with my stuff. And people would say, you, this, you don't take this anywhere? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know. Um, and then it became, that became more important to me. But, but part of it was because I started to, to see it as important. Whereas before, before diagnosis, I think I just saw it as something I did. And, and I didn't, I, I, I don't think I felt as strongly about my abilities and, and so forth. So did, I guess, gosh, I didn't think of it until just now, but maybe diagnosis gave me some confidence like you know okay you can do this if you can fight this big thing you can certainly fight these smaller things The Your Life After podcast is a place where people can talk about the lives they lead after traumas. This podcast will feature survivors, victims, and professionals sharing their experiences, expertise, insights, and struggles. The goal here is not to showcase stories of triumph, though I'm sure some of those stories will be triumphant. The goal is to shine a light on our own shared humanity and to perhaps encourage someone to move forward through their own trauma. I'm your host, Robin Dunbryant. I'm a coach who helps people heal from the physiological effects of generational trauma, sexual abuse, and sexual assault. Let's get talking, shall we? Hey there, Darlene. How are you? I'm good. Good. I'm so glad that you were able to uh, to make it here tonight. It's been it's been a good little while. I like to let people know early if I if I know the guests. Um, and we go we go back a good ways. We won't do the math because I think that will let people know a little bit about how old I am. At least you're a little younger than I am, but still. Um, and we've got we got a lot in common. It's really it's really interesting, especially like some of the things that have happened since we haven't been in the same sphere. So let's let's kind of run this down for for the folks that are listening. We already know this, right? You know, we're both poets. Uh, we both went to VCU. You came, I think, the year after I did. Um, and we have this history of, of you know, interest or obsession, well, depending on who you talk to, with the Jonestown Massacre. Um, and and unfortunately, both of us have gotten stopped in our tracks by, you know, an unexpected health crisis. Right. Um, and and then now this kind of we'll talk about it a little bit too. this this work around trauma and healing that we're kind of moving into in our own ways, which I think is just really, really fascinating. Um, so I just, you know, we're going to talk about some of those things. I probably, I don't know, for everybody's sake, we probably shouldn't geek out over Jonestown stuff too much. People might find that odd. I don't know why it's a fascinating, fascinating situation. Um, but let's, let's kind of start at, Let's start with the health. I think that 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 has been a big pivoting point for me, at least, um, kind of got me into the work that I'm doing. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, and I'm not going to be prescriptive. You can tell us what you want and keep out what you don't. Um, 
So my health crisis started in 2016. The, um, I was training for a marathon. I, I had become a distance runner in the years before. Was training for a marathon. Had some issues with breathing. Nothing serious, at least what I thought, and found out I was in heart failure, an advanced heart failure at that. So um, very uh, unexpected. I was otherwise healthy. Uh, my primary care physician was not looking for that diagnosis. She sent me for some tests, but the expectation was that I had allergies or asthma, um, and we just wanted to 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 confirm that. But what ended up coming out was that there was no allergies, there was no asthma, there was an enlarged heart that was beating over time. And is that is that something that you can't? I mean. You have to have scans, I guess, I would assume, for something like that. It's not even something you would pick up, like, with a with a stethoscope and a regular sort of uh, physical or anything. No. So I, I was having issues with the breathing when I was running. Um, and mostly it was in the beginning of the, of the run. So I was still training for the marathon at that point and, um, and expecting to go to the marathon at that point. And, and, and so I guess from... It, it was six months from noticing symptoms to actual diagnosis. So event, so one day I go out to start conditioning for my marathon, my marathon training season and, um, and I'm doing fine. I go out another day and it's not fine. And I just thought I was out of condition. Um, and so, but that continued for a while and I called and my appointment wasn't until July. So I continued training for this summer and when, um, when I when I went in July, the test that she decided on was a pulmonary exam, and she said if the pulmonary exam is clean, which she expected it to be, she said then we'll do a chest X-ray. Um, it was the chest X-ray that showed the enlarged heart, and from that that um, that imaging, they called me in that same day for an echocardiogram. So it wouldn't have been something that a typical like that wouldn't be part of a typical appointment. Um, right. But yeah. And then from the echocardiogram, they didn't tell me what they were seeing, but they they called me to the back and had me wait. And then they gave me an EKG and, you know, and the, the process started from there. You know, it's so and, you know, you think about that. The fact that that you paid attention to it, I'm being prescriptive, right? I, I I won't run unless somebody chases me. It's never been anything that felt really good for me, right? I don't enjoy it at all. But I do know a lot of runners, and I know kind of the mindset, and especially distance running. There's a lot of pain and discomfort that is just a part of it, yeah. right? Like, so any signals that you're getting, right, you, you were like, I'm out of shape, even though right. you probably weren't, right? And and so right. <laughs> this this whole idea of really kind of getting whatever signals you're getting Luckily, you know, even though you had that span of time between the time that you were like, hey, what's going on and the time they got you in that you listened to um, in, a, in a situation where what you're supposed to do is kind of push your body to the edge. It's just it's yeah. I mean, it's a lucky thing that that you went ahead and made the appointment. Right. And that nothing happened in the space between um, mm -hmm. and probably. I don't know if that's true or not, because I'm not a doctor. I'm just about to make some prescriptive sort of statement. I'm thinking, you know, you were in good shape. That probably bodes, bodes well for you in this in this shape, even though your heart was enlarged, like the rest yeah. of your body 
had been working in these in these really nice ways. If you'd been, you know, a sedentary person, it might have been a very different thing. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, it would have been. We we do know that. I mean okay. that kind of conclusion. Um, because I also have a rhythm problem. So it's not just that it's enlarged. I also have a heart rhythm problem that came from the scars and so forth. And that rhythm problem means that my heart will, um, it has extra heartbeats and it also has this, what we call prolonged QT interval. So it doesn't be, it like it'll slow down on a beat. Interestingly enough, as a marathoner, you have a low heart rate anyway. You know, your heart starts to adapt to it. So with that low heart rate and then that like prolonged beat, I had the potential of going into cardiac arrest because it would forget to be. I didn't know this, obviously, you know. Right. But, yeah, so so it would have been a very different situation if I wasn't aware that something wasn't quite right. Like, it was like, yes, I can run, but because people would say, well, you're still running. And I would say, yeah, I know, but this isn't, this doesn't feel like it should feel like I should feel differently about my running and then the other symptom was fatigue um I was just tired all the time like I could sleep and not ever get enough rest but I always thought that that was related to my lifestyle Mm -hmm. I was like well you get up early in the morning and you know you're doing all these things with your job and you know we give ourselves these excuses but um but yeah I think I was just I think the other thing about runners and probably athletes and anybody who's active in any way they're familiar with what their body does and doesn't do so my normal was abnormal at that point like you know what was normal for me what was not um was not happening and I was aware of that I knew that this was not the way that I should feel when I run you know um so so yeah yeah I think um you were right when you were saying it, it with a doctor like you were saying, I'm being prescriptive. It, well, absolutely. You know, the, what you said was absolutely true. That's, it's important. One of the things that I tell people it's important to know whatever your normal is. So it doesn't require that you be an athlete to know that. It just requires that you're attentive to your body. You know, you know that when you got up last week, it was easy to stand up out of the bed. And then a week later, all of a sudden, you're having difficulty. You start, you need to start paying attention to that because it's telling you something. It's so it's so telling too, right? Like we're we've been talking about this a lot. We're obsessed with food right now uh, because we because we cook three meals a day almost every day, which is not normal for us. We are folks that will grab something because we run so much, and um and one of the things that we're both noticing is that you know our joints feel better, right? We're <laughs> we're not aching anymore. Crazy, you would think that we would know that, um, you know, but we. It's like, yeah, this, all of these things are starting to feel a little bit different. And that's just being able to pay attention to it. You know, mm-hmm. for years and years, I've eaten a lot of things that don't work for me. And it's mm-hmm. not, it's not like allergic reactions. So there's no hives. There's no anything, but it's just not right. feeling right. Just feeling yeah. a little creaky, a little stuck in, you know, your mm-hmm. shoulder or your back or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's food related. Um, yeah. and it's, you know, been years of doing this, you know, kind of since we got here. And after, you know, after active cancer treatments is starting mm-hmm. to pay attention to everything, every single little teeny tiny thing, mind yeah. you. Um, and it was the, it was the food that started to show up, um, because the provider that I had was like, you need to cut these things out of your diet. And I was like, that won't make any difference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I love that 
that that I, I don't think about that. I'm really my I have a particular bias because I don't like to run, right? But yes, runners are in touch with what's supposed to feel right for them. And yes, everyone should be in touch with what feels right or just different. Even, yeah. you know, even if you're not like finely tuned and you're, you know, but something is a little bit different than it was before, that is a sign. And that is something yeah. that's, that's being told to us, um, by our bodies, which I think is yeah. really, I, I love like that. It's like a whisper, you know, it'll whisper to you, you know, and then eventually it will scream. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I might have heard some, kind of yells and didn't, didn't pay attention. Like I always tell my mom, my mom remembers this story distinctly because I went for a run and I was, I had been complaining, you know, like I just don't seem to be getting faster and things are not working the same. And on that particular day, I went for a run and I said, I'm going to run through this residential neighborhood. And um, when, when I start to have that feeling like I'm short of breath, then I'm just going to sprint. <laughs> And and I'm using this residential neighborhood because I know that someone's going to wake up to go to work and find me if I pass out. And I actually told her this on that day. Like, now I think about it, and I'm like, that tells you that you knew something was right. really off if you were saying, well, if I pass out, you know. And and I called her when I was finished, excited, and I was like, I knew I still had it. I sprinted, and, you know, and I ran all the way back to the Y. And she's like, uh, dark? <laughs> 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 I don't know that. I, I mean, none of us thought it was going to be anything that big, but right. at the same time, it was like I don't know if you should sprint it through a feeling of you know maybe I'll pass out, but maybe I won't. Um, but yeah, like so, I I think that there were messages that I was receiving that maybe I wasn't listening to what they were saying. I was listening to them, but I wasn't listening to what they were saying. They were background noise. <laughs> I like the I like the whisper to a scream, and I also since I live with a small person, it's sort of like you know the tap the tap on your shoulder, the little kid trying to get your attention. Yes. And if you don't pay attention, either our son's new thing now is to, he likes to grab your head or your face and turn <laughs> you towards the thing. Uh, but some kids will have tantrums, some kids will yell and scream a little bit. He's just a it's like you've got to look at this. This is what's mm-hmm. going on. Um, and if we don't. You know, we don't pay attention. Our bodies will sit us down. You, you, yes, now yes. you can't do anything else until you take yes. care of this, you know. Um, do you guys, I don't know if this is true. I don't know if this is a universal thing, this idea of this new normal. I'm going to put that in quotes. I really hate, I hated hearing that, um, especially, you know, in the midst of everything. And people are like, oh, it's going to be your new normal. Or the people that are like, you're going to be grateful for what cancer taught you. And I'm like, no, not at all. This is not... I, I, you know, I don't know if that's, is that universal? Do you hear that in, in your, I hear in your that all the time. Okay. Yeah. No, okay. Not a fan of it. Um, I, I have to say, I, I didn't really think about it. I just don't say it very often. I, I guess in part because something I mentioned to you off, um, off our recording when I was talking about, um, this idea that it's chronic, it's ongoing. It's, and that's what life is, right? It's, it's, it's Something like I remember telling my mom, I said, well, in four years, something was going to change. Everything, things change. That's what they do. I didn't expect it to be this, but it was going to change. So this idea that normal is a set and hard and fast thing is just, that's an impossible concept, right? (laughs) You know, 
it just can't be because things are constantly changing. Um, and so this is just one of the changes. Not my favorite, but, you know, it is one of the changes. And I love that. I, I really am, I'm not a huge, I don't want to say I'm a huge fan of change. I don't mind it as much as a lot of people do. And even in the midst of chaos, I like, if I can have one constant, right? Like I've got my journal here and I loop my, my strap around so I can slide my pen. That could be enough for me in the midst of everything else being chaotic in my life. But, um, but that idea that we are ever static, I mean, our brains want that. We want to connect the dots. We want to line everything up. We want it to be that way. Mm-hmm. But we also know in, a, in the same brain that that's not true. Right. Like you and I are going to be different people after this phone call. Yeah. Right? It's, it's not, it's, you know, cellular on a cellular level and that we might learn something from each other that is going to change the way that we think about something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to think that we can ever have a normal Right. Maybe we maybe we have a routine, <laughs> but like yeah. nothing is not a normal um, yes. and not a new normal, which just always felt so dismissive. Like, oh, you'll just get over this, you know, and it's like this is a pretty big deal. This is disruptive. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that big deal part. I think for me, one of the things that I've noticed is that because I, I look well, um people don't realize everything that's happening. Like, and I, I and I have to admit, in, in some cases, in the, especially in the beginning, I think I was in denial. It was like, oh, we can fix this. Let's, let's fix this. We'll take these pills, and this is, you know. And, in fact, the first day I said, um, the day I got diagnosed, the diagnosis car, diagnosing cardiologist asked me, he said, so you run? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I'm go- I want you to slow down some. And I said, um, so are we talking like 10 miles, five miles? <laughs> and he's looking at me like, no, you can't run at all. You know, and I was like, oh, okay. I said, so what do you want me to do? And I'm kind of smirking because I'm thinking, oh, we're going to fix this and I'll be back on the road, you know. So he gives me a prescription and I said, when do you want me to take it? <laughs> the look on his face was just like, <laughs> like now? You know, and he says, um, I want you to take it when you get home. Like, I want you to go to the pharmacy, get it, and swallow it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. But I'm also thinking to myself, oh, good, I have a fix. You know, like, I was like, we're going to clear this out real quick. I'll take this. Almost like you would take a Z-Pack or something. You know, I'm going to take this. And then in a couple of weeks, you know, we should be able to get back on track. Um and so I was, I had some level of denial myself because I felt fine. Like that was really difficult for me. They were like, don't, you know, we want you to slow down on your workouts. And I was like, but I feel okay working out. Like, why can't I work out? And, you know, it's like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's been a journey. I think it's, I feel I, the thing that's really interesting too about it is this, this idea of this, when you were talking about the, the downbeat, there's a, a technical phrase, right? But this this downbeat in your heart um, and this rhythm being a little bit different, right? I won't even say off, but different, right? This is yeah. this is the way your heart is working right now, right? And and it's so internal to us. I know my heart is beating because I'm talking to you, yeah. and it's not anything that I ever think about. And so it's not it's it's easier to think about, oh, you know, I, I tore my, my ACL. 
I'm going to, I'm going to put this because this, I feel it and yeah. I can, I can see it not working. And all of these things that happen internally, you have cancer, right? Like that doesn't make any sense to me. I, I, I do feel okay, you know, and, and I feel worse when the treatment happens than I do when it doesn't. So, oh, oh you my know, gosh. Yeah, <laughs> to put yourself into this, this cognitive dissonance all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember there's a, I can't remember what it's called. Anybody that's listening has ever had any kind of cancer treatment with this drug will know exactly what it is. There's a technical, you know, like a legal name for it, but mm-hmm. they call it the red devil, right? <laughs> um, that's really nice. The red devil, right? And, and, you know, and it's so caustic. They try not to do it in the vein. They try to do it through a port. I didn't have one um, because I had a really good, I had a great nurse and she was, you know, oh. they, the doctor, <laughs> the oncologist that I was working with at that time did not order a port for me. He should have. And we'll say that, okay. um, mm-hmm. you know, he got fired after a lot of the active treatment. Um, but the, the nurse would say that they, they push it by hand. It's not on a drip. You have to push mm-hmm. it by hand to make sure that everything's okay. And she is literally in a hazmat suit, like <laughs> full on head to toe, eye covering gloves up to her elbows sitting there with me. And this is how she has to administer this because it is so toxic. And here I am, you know, this herbal loving, tree hugging sort of girl. And I had to sit there. And every time we would, I always had the same woman. I had one treatment without her and it was terrible. So I would always look for the same nurse. And she and I would sit. We had kids around the same age. You know, her daughter was my daughter's age. And we would sit. And I would say, before you do this, we just have to sit for a minute. Because I have to reconcile the fact that I'm letting you put poison in me. Because yeah. I don't believe in any of this, and I'm not buying herbs for cancer, right? Like, I have to do this with you. Mm-hmm. We're going to sit here together for a minute. And she was so lovely about it. But it was just, it was so wow. bizarre because nothing hurt in me. I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel any yeah. different. Um, and I had to kind of submit to this. I'm a strong-willed, stubborn sort of person. Mm-hmm. And all of these people are making these decisions for me. Mm-hmm. And I, and I have to say yes, not to everything, but to a right. lot of a lot of these things. Um, I just, yeah, it just I, I, I there that that whole thing about acquiescing to this and really just saying okay, let's let's make it happen. Um, right. And and one of the things that that happened in the midst of that, I mentioned the guy that got fired, is that in a in a way that felt very different. I don't know if this is is your experience or not. I started to find a different kind of voice that I had never had. I mean, I am a ridiculously good advocate for myself now. I'm a terrible patient. I don't walk mm-hmm. in and just say yes to anything anymore. I don't have to, right? Um and as black women, you know, we hear these horror stories about what happens to us in these medical fields and these in these professions um, you know, the the, mater- um, the uh, maternal mortality rate, um, you know, on another day and another time, I'll tell the story of my son's birth, which, you know, because of the cancer, let me just say maybe that's a good thing. I was able to advocate for myself in a different okay. way. Who knows what have happened if I had been the person that I was before cancer okay. um, and had not had that voice and that ability. But I, I wonder about, if you if you see that or feel that change in your work, right? I, I, I'm I'm assuming that you've had to advocate for yourself in a different way medically. Does that show up? Does your did your voice change or shift 
Do you feel that in your work? That's interesting. I, you know, I never thought about it. Now I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, like, did it change? Um, am I more assertive? Because that, that does require me to be more assertive. Um, or the medical situation required me to be assertive, like you said, to advocate for myself. I don't know if I see it in the actual work, but I do see it in the way that I work. I think I'm less, less apologetic, um, more determined about pushing it out there. Um, I don't question myself as much about it because we tend to, I mean, we know what publishing looks like or maybe we don't. Publishing is a difficult thing, you know, um, and I think there was a time when I, a couple of things. First of all, I just wanted to be published. Like, I just wanted to push it out there. And now I don't feel that same sense of urgency. Not in that way. You know, I feel like the work is important and it will find its way. Um, and then in terms of advocating for it is just um, being willing to put it out there. You know, whereas before, I think I would have, if, if I put it out there and it got rejected, I would question it. I would revise it. I would. It must be something wrong with me. You know, it must be something wrong with what I've said or what I've written or how I've written it. Um, and I don't feel that way anymore. And then um, I began a little bit before, actually before diagnosis, but certainly after diagnosis with experimenting with putting other work out there that I didn't share very much. Like particularly my visual art, I kind of just put stuff up all around the house. <laughs> I mean, I decorate my house with my stuff. And people would say, you this you don't take this anywhere and I'm like no <laughs> you know um and then it became that became more important to me but, but part of it was because I started to to see it as important whereas before before diagnosis I think I just saw it as something I did and, and I didn't I, I I don't think I felt as strongly about my abilities and and so forth so did I guess Gosh, I didn't think of it until just now, but maybe diagnosis gave me some confidence. Like, you know, okay, you can do this. If you can fight this big thing, you can certainly fight these smaller things. Yeah. Now I'm going to go back and look at my work and look for this. I do want to know. I want to know if you, if you see, if you see any difference, if you can notice that and that, that shift. I didn't know that you did visual art. And I didn't know until you started posting stuff on Facebook. And I was like, whoa, not only are you doing it, you're good at it, right? Like, I, that's not that's not a talent that I share, right? And I was like, this is really, really cool stuff. And there's one particular piece that I don't know enough about, and I want to know enough about it. Um, just because of my my own bent, right? The work that I do with people is really body-based. It's somatic. And you've got this. I don't know what it's called, right? This, okay. this thing, how the body remembers. And oh, yeah. Please talk to us about that a little bit, because I, I was peeking around on the site, and I remember when you posted it, and I was like, at that point even, I was I should talk to her about this. Then a squirrel <laughs> happened, and I ended up someplace else. But tell us a little bit about that. First of all, tell me what, what would you call it, and then tell us oh, about it. A project? I don't, I don't even know. That's you know, fine. But interestingly, that started before diagnosis. Like, okay. I had this idea that the body, um, that our body, we perform trauma in our bodies. So when I say perform, I was thinking about my students, really. And I was thinking about how they 
like I call it gritting. You know, that's the language they use. Like they'll look at you with this this face that looks like they're very, they're really angry with you. It's very aggressive, and it typically comes from the girls. You know, um, and they're just watch. It's kind of like they're just watching you, waiting for you in the beginning to see what you do, like to waiting for your misstep. You know, and I always recognize gritting as kind of a mask. You know, like this is because probably their experiences with authority figures or instructors and so forth has not been positive. And so they're waiting for me to show myself to be that same kind of person. And so this is a performance of the trauma they experienced in this same environment. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I guess I was thinking of it that way. And then for myself, I was thinking of what was I doing and how did I move through the world, like physically move through the world that showed up that and how did trauma show up in the way that I moved through the world, that I physically moved through the world. And I was taking dance class, like studying dance class and um, studying West African dance and belly dance. And the very specific place that I always had issues was in my hips. My hips are just tight. <laughs> it seems never to be stretched, like, you know. And one of my instructors said something and whatever she said was really intuitive. It was like, you just have to loosen up or something. The way she said it, I'm paraphrasing poorly. But it stuck with me because I was like, this is where I keep having issues. This is where it keeps showing up. So in my mind, I keep going backwards and I go back to my first dance class in um, modern dance class in college. And in that class, we watched Alvin Ailey's Revelations. And I started thinking about how they use their bodies to illustrate the trauma of the African-American experience. And that's kind of like. Yeah. So, I I mean, that's a long roundabout way of saying how I came to that. So I started writing poetry about it because we talked about I was in a workshop where we talked about ekphrastic poetry, ekphrastic poetry being the kind of poetry that that responds to artwork. Um, And so I I was like, what if I don't respond to a, a, a piece of art, but rather to dance like we don't think about that as ekphrastic? And I started with the poetry and then because visual art is kind of where when one of it has been one of the places I go to when I get stuck. I started creating visual art around it as well. And that kind of I started noticing that I talk about that in my work. That is this body's this somatic performance of trauma, like what it looks like when you see someone walking down the street. Can you see it? And if you're looking for it, you can, you know. And then, and then there it was in my actual body. <laughs> you know. Oh, oh, this is more exciting than I thought it was. Right? <laughs> like, no, really, it is. I, I see this. It, it, I think it freaks my my boss out, the studio owner, a little bit when I teach because of the because the work I do is so physical, and I'm staring at people's bodies all the time. When I teach yoga. I kind of just teach and assume that everybody has had some sort of trauma anyway. So I'm just kind of in there and I'm like, you know, hold these spaces so that you're not really, you know, as much as you can, you're not triggering anybody's anything. I don't Mm -hmm. do hands on adjustments. I don't walk around. I don't go, Hey, Darlene, do you need help? Like I don't do any of those things. Um, But I can actually too, I can see spaces where I'm not whatever's happened, but there's something that's happened that's holding the body in this way. Mm-hmm. I can see that in my students. Um, and, and it's, it's always amazing and it's always interesting just to be able to look at that and go, okay, yeah, you've got it. Right. 
Um, and even when I work with clients, I don't see most of them in the same room. I see them on Zoom. But I can tell even in breath, in the way that their shoulders yeah. sit, in the way that they sit towards everything, everything is just talking all the time. Yeah. And bodies are so happy to be heard that if they're like, you can hear me? You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> it's like the ghost showing up for the person that sees them. They're like, I've been telling everybody all the things and you're the only right. person paying attention. When you show up for people's bodies, one of the things that you mentioned when, you know, you filled out some, sent me some information before we got on so that I would have like a little guidance. And mm-hmm. you, you said something about wanting to expand, you know, working with an expanded definition of wellness mm-hmm. and especially for, for black women, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Tell us a little bit about your vision for that expanded definition. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have thought. <laughs> It was an episode of some shows that I have thoughts. I have lots of thoughts. Um, <laughs> uh, but that expanded, that expanded definition, particularly for black women, one of the things that I was just reading yesterday was an article by a young woman who had also been diagnosed with heart failure at a fairly young age um, and, and kind of out of the blue. And all these comments were coming at her talking about, you know, obesity runs <laughs> In black women. And I was like, have you all not heard the research that points out that this concept of obesity is often culturally biased, is often biased against black women in their, in their body? Um, and then secondly, um, this concept that you caused whatever happened to you, like you caused it because you didn't do something. I, I, you know, so this idea that wellness is something that you, that you're in control of or else you're being punished for not participating in. That's one thing. Um, the other thing is this idea that wellness looks like something. So I guess that speaks to, to the obesity, that wellness looks like a certain body type, you mm-hmm. know. Um, as long as you're, my experience with the wellness community has been if you're thin, um, if you're white and if you have clear skin, you know, these kinds of things tend to, to, um, they seem, they, they're supposedly demonstrative of wellness. And I've known, I remember being in a capoeira class and I still can't do a cartwheel. And, um, there was a young woman in that class who would have been what we call thick, I guess, in the black community, right? She's doing cartwheels. She's squatting down and kicking. And I'm like, uh, but the concept was that because of what she looked like, supposedly, that somehow she wasn't well, you know, that she was somehow unhealthy. So, yeah, those are some of the my my ideas about expanding wellness. And I don't find that those are new. A lot of people are talking about it. Um, but then I also see ableism in the wellness communities, these ideas that um, that if you think, if you think it, you can, you can do it. Like if you really want to run 26 <laughs> miles, all you have to do is like get your willpower up. And I'm like, no, right. this right. is not true. Um, if I run 26 miles today or try it, you know, you won't see me tomorrow, you know, or the next day or the next day. Like, you know, this is, this is not something that we can say. Um, so these ideas about wellness that are, extremely limiting, extremely exclusive, um, don't take into account all of the things, 
that can happen to a person, happen to a person's body that have nothing to do with anything that the person did or did not do. You know, my mother had a stroke at 38 <sighs> and it put her into high blood pressure for the, I mean, for the now forever. My mother never had a problem with blood pressure, you know, um, before that. And now my mom will take, no matter how much walking she does, no matter how well she eats, she will always take blood pressure medicine. And yet I was in these fitness classes that would say, we can get you off of that medicine. You probably won't ever get me off of every heart medicine. There are some medicines that maybe I will reduce and maybe I won't have to take, but I'll probably always take some sort of prescription for the rest of my life. Um, And yet I'm (laughs) sometimes I look at people and I'm like, I'm more well than you. Even with my prescriptions, but you're telling me that because I take those, that there's, that somehow I'm at a deficit and somehow I'm not well. So, so yeah. Well, I, I just find the wellness community to be, yeah, really exclusive, uh, really ableist, um, kind of racist, transphobic, so many things. So, so many things. All the isms that you don't want. Every ism that you think of, they, yeah. they have some classism, yeah. Well, you know, and it's, it's, it boggles the mind, right? Like, the idea, that idea that one body is going to be the type, or that we look at it and we're not talking about, you know, we have this idea, like, I think about being, being well, and I think about it kind of in a very broad sense, right? So there's physical wellness, mm-hmm. emotional, and, you know, social and financial and all of these different sorts of things. It's all of it. But even if we're looking at this idea of physical wellness, um, I can't ever look at anybody and make a decision about what's going on in their bodies. You mentioned yeah. high blood pressure, right? That mm-hmm. lovely little boy who lives in my house who I adore <laughs> kicked mine into high gear. And I'd never, ever, mm-hmm. I was always like one of those, 110 over 60 sort of people, no matter what weight I was at. Um, and so now what I, what ends up happening with new providers, almost all of my providers that I see regularly, my oncologists, we have this, I don't know how long our relationship is going to last. I also find her to be quite delightful. So it's okay. But like anybody that's new, I have to really be pretty firm with them about kind of what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to, you may see these, you know, spiky numbers or something like that, depending on what's going on and how well the meds are working, because it's an ebb and flow with me. Yeah. But you have to understand that I'm an active person. I do these different sorts of things. Like I have to explain all of this away because they look at me and they've decided right away. You know, um, what I started doing past the last round, I guess it was right in January. I did a round mm-hmm. of appointments with everybody. I like to bunch them all up and just get them out of the way. Mm-hmm. And this last round, I decided I wasn't going to get on the scale anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to be weighed. I'm not going to be weighed at these appointments. If I have to go in for surgery, I will allow them to weigh me because they need to be able to dose the anesthesia. Exactly. Um, if I'm going in for a checkup, I'm just not doing it. And so, okay. and it, it buckles their minds, right? You know, they're like, why, why aren't you doing this? And I said, you know, First of all, because you can't have a conversation with me, a couple of them, without deciding that we need to change my weight in order to respond to this issue that I'm having. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that can't be that can't be everything. It's not the answer to everything. And because for me, you know, getting over growing up in this society, what I'm trying to do is not really I'm not trying to traumatize myself by talking shit about me. 
Instead yeah. of being really kind <laughs> in my own head. So I get on this scale, which is an old thing. You know, it goes mm-hmm. way back to like elementary school. It goes way back to my mama talking stuff and, you know, these people, mm-hmm. whatever. It's all of it. So there, I'm already set up for that. And then you want to have a conversation about this pound or two that things have moved or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, honey, I'm 50. Things are going to happen. <laughs> what, are, what are we doing here? You know? Yeah. And so I said, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get weighed anymore. I'm just not doing it. Yeah. I don't need to do that because there are other things that are going on and I want you to be able to talk to me about that. Mm-hmm. And if it becomes you know, that, a fact, it works in the reverse for me, which is, it's kind of, well, you look well, so we're not going to talk to you about what your issue is. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like even the, the, um, Miss Scott, Miss Scott, and I'm like, it's me. Like, I'm not here with anybody. It's me. And they're looking at me like, I've had, this is not, I don't have this as much because I'm going to the same, you know, clinics and so forth. But, um, but I remember going in, especially in the beginning and they would be looking around and I'm like, I'm walking toward you. I am this guy. It is me. Like, you know, they're like, Oh, we weren't expecting that. Or they would ask me, essentially, are you in the right place? This is what it boiled down to. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. like, um, so you're, uh, here for your heart. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I don't have a broken arm. Like, you know, this is a very specific wing of the hospital. I, I think I can read and I know where this is, but, um, but yeah, this idea that, like you said, that I can look at you and make decisions and I can start talking to you based on that. Like, well, since you're well, we'll just, my early cardiologist that I was trying to get second opinion, third opinion, whatever. And he was like, um, yeah, you're doing good. Just keep running. And my uncle, I, you know, at the time, remember I told you I was in denial. So right. I was like, Oh, keep running. Sure. That sounds good <laughs> to me. And my uncle, who's an internist is like, uh, no, you know, right. no, I don't think he actually, he said, I don't think that's very good advice, <laughs> you know, cause I was excited. I was like, Uncle Carl. I can run. He's like, um, yeah, no, I don't think we're going to follow that advice, you know. Um, but the idea was you're a young, healthy woman, you know, I want you to keep, keep going. That's literally what he said. It, it, you seem to be taking it easy. So just keep taking it easy. Wow. And no, but it boiled down to this is what you look like. And then it was, they have a, a lot of ageism that happens as well. It's kind of, um, how old are you? Because they're talking to me like I'm a child, and I'm like, no, I'm quite an adult here, you know. Right. Um. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had to. Um, when I was when I was first diagnosed, I was what, 35, maybe. Yeah, let's go with that. I was 35, 36, <laughs> right around there. And um, and I went in. I found a lump. I went into my OBGYN, and I was like, I need you to order a mammogram for me. And she said, well, you're not 40. And I said, yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, and I said, but I'm black, so that lowers the number, right? She was like, well, you know, and I was like, this is the problem. This is what's going on. She did an exam, and she's like, oh, yeah, I feel a little something, but, you know, it's probably just, you know, and she starts naming all these different sorts of things. And we were getting ready to move from D.C. to Tallahassee, right? Mm-hmm. So we were leaving town, and I said, do me a favor. Humor me. Because I have this really great insurance, and yeah. it's going to pay for a hundred percent of that. And and this was the plan. I'm leaving that insurance behind, and I don't know when I'll get it on the other end because this was before um, Affordable Care Act, right? So mm-hmm. I didn't want to carry Cobra 
Who can afford mm-hmm. that? So I'm like, I don't want to do that. We're going to, you know, both of us are giving up our insurance. We're off in this grand adventure. Let's just do this because I'm here. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, she hemmed and hawed and I was like, or you can just write down in my chart that I, that you refuse to send me and I'll go someplace else and have them send me. She's like, all right, I'll make a call. And so they caught it. Right. But every, you know, kind of every place, again, another reintroduction, you're so young. And I'm like, cancer happens to children. Right. You know, like, I don't understand. Did you guys miss this part of your schooling? Like, how do I know more? I'm so confused about that. I'm always like, well, you're so young. And I'm like, well, not that young. I mean, and even it's that young. So, right. I still have a body and there's something that's happening in this body that's exactly. a little different than what I want. Like, can we get past that? Right. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You start. You had to start advocating early. Um, yeah. I it, I I can't even imagine. I, I don't even like to think about what would have happened had we taken that had we taken that advice. We would have been right. financially ruined. I probably. I probably could have lost my life, honestly, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to just come down, you know, and even, I mean, this is on us, right? So the idea was we were moving in August, the beginning of August. I got diagnosed a few days ago in June, like the beginning of June, right? Mm-hmm. And we were going to, we were going to get to, I was going to have the surgery in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins, which is lovely. God hope nobody ever has to go there, but it was a really, like end-to-end nice experience. You show up for your appointment, and there's a person there for you, a former patient that volunteers that's there to walk with you to all these, you know, different doctors and talk to all these people Mm -hmm. so that you're not alone in the process, right? And then they've got all this family support, and Mm -hmm. we're like, yeah. And they called. There was a glitch. They misread my insurance, luckily, Mm -hmm. because here was our plan. We're going to go. We're going to ship our stuff down to Florida in a pod. I'm going to go get surgery. And for the two weeks between the surgery and the follow-up, going to sleep on an air mattress on the floor without any other stuff. This was our plan. Idiots. And so some some glitch happened with the insurance, and they're like, we won't, co- we won't cover 100% for some reason. And I was like, we're not paying for this. I'll just do this on the other end. <laughs> so we move. We get here in August. I have surgery in October. That was that was the oh. earliest. Yeah, ridiculous. Like I think about that, and I'm like, you're supposed to be here for a reason, Absolutely. fooling around like that, you know? Um, and it was it was just it was just madness. Like, why would we do that? We just didn't know any better. Yeah. <laughs> just young and dumb, really. I mean, honestly, <laughs> yes, yes, all of those things. And when I finally, I mind you, I had I went all the way through surgery. I had two surgeries. Because mm-hmm. um, the margins weren't clear, I had to go back, and then they were like, "Okay, now you're going to go and and you know connect with your oncologist for chemo and radiation." Nobody had ever mentioned either of those things to me, and I I didn't have an oncologist. The surgeon was like, "Who's your oncologist?" And I was like, "Do I need one?" I had been managing my own care from the very beginning. Oh gosh. Until after that, good thing I can Google. Good thing mm-hmm. I can ask a lot of questions. I mean, I cannot believe what happened in the. The oncologist, when we got there, was was he was gobsmacked. He was like, I don't understand how you got this far without anybody wow. coordinating your care. And I was like, I, nobody told me I needed to. I just made phone calls, and they said, okay, come in. You know, yeah. I had the, had the files I needed. I had the diagnosis. Oh, my goodness. What did I need you for? And he was like, oh, my God. He 
he's a jackass <laughs> though. But like, yeah, madness, absolute wow. madness. But too young for cancer. That's that's the moral of the story. Too young for cancer. Right. Yeah. Right. Even it, though there's. If, if, and sometimes you want to say, I I wish like <laughs> I wish it was that simple. Is that I was just too young, and there's there's no way that anything could happen to me. Or I was too healthy, and there's no way anything could happen to me. It's it's not that simple. Yeah. And that's okay, but I just need y'all to understand that. Like you know. It's, yeah. And we're not. I, I'm not entertaining that anymore. You know. I, I mean, I'm I'm of an age now that nobody ever says anything about it. They might go, "Oh, that well, you were young when it happened," but you know, you're clearly old now. Is where they're going with it. <laughs> but I I just kind of look at it and I'm like, we're. It doesn't matter. Whatever you know, we got to get out of whatever you've decided. Mm-hmm. And now I need you to talk to me about what's going on. I don't have mm-hmm. the time for it. And I come in and I'm like, not I own you. Have I own you energy, right? But mm-hmm. I'm paying you. I'm going to pay you. I'm going to pay somebody at the front, my copay, and my insurance is going to yeah. pay you much more. You work for me. And yeah. I'm not going to be abusive to you. I'm not going to do all these terrible things, but that's the relationship. You mm-hmm. work for me. Mm-hmm. So if I need to be educated, then you need to educate me. Mm-hmm. And if I need to, you know, do these different sorts of things. I'm going to advocate for myself and you need to hear me. And if not, yeah. you don't work for me anymore. Right. <laughs> I'll yeah. find somebody else. Find somebody else. else. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I've I got come to a, a great team. I, you know, I really like my team, it, it, but I always give credit to my primary care because like you were saying, you went to your primary care. And as soon as you said something, there was kickback. Not my primary care. As soon as I said something in that July uh, meeting, um, she first did this in-office pulmonary test. She said, well, I, I can do this. She said, but I'm going to write out these papers for you to, these referrals for you to do these tests. I want you to do one at a time, you know, so that you're not overpaying because one might find whatever we need to find and then you don't need to do the rest. Uh, but she listened to me immediately. Like, as soon as I said it, and the thing was that she would always tell me in my visits, like, you're not sleeping enough. You know, that's why you're tired. Um, you're, you're not eating properly, you know, and the eating properly really had to do with like her concern with me not getting enough calories. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, so she was like, it could be that, but she listened anyway. Like, it wasn't like she didn't just say, well, you know, it's it's probably you you're just doing too much and you need to get some more sleep and you need to eat a little bit more and I'm just gonna send you on your way. And she's been that way. She's always been that way. If I say something didn't feel right, um, she'll say, Well, I want you to get, she might say, I want you to give it a week and tell me what you feel and then I'm gonna write these orders or something like that. But um but I just know a lot of women that I've talked to, particularly with heart disease, have been told that they were stressed. Um have been told all kinds of things. Oh, it's probably something you ate, you know, and stuff. And then they go home and they have a whole heart event, you know, because they weren't listened to and because they didn't advocate for themselves. I I don't know what I would have done, to be honest, if she had said, oh, it's nothing and just let it go. Um, I don't know, but I have a feeling that I would have at least said, well, can we, can we at least consider Something, or I would have gone home and Googled and said, I looked up this test. You know, what about doing this or, or whatever? But, um, but yeah, advocating for, for myself has been 
has been critical. But like I said, I got once I finished with those couple of uh, my diagnosing doctor and then the second opinion and I came to my current cardiologist, um, I, I ended up with a great team because of him. I, I mean, it, it has a lot to do with him as well, which is because he, he didn't look at it and say, this just happened to her. Now let's give her some medicine. So this happened to you. And I want to know why. Mm. And and that's that's what I needed, a why, like or at least to try to find a why. I recognize that some things we'll never get a why for, but it just seemed like we should at least try to find it. And in trying to find it, then, you know, that that helps with my outcome in my treatments because we have a reason. I don't think if we had had a re- if we had had no reason and kept giving medicine, we would have just been kind of pouring medicine into a black hole. Mm. So all of these people, your cardiologist and your primary care physician and then your cardiology team, you've, they're all the same people that you're talking about. You haven't gotten rid of anybody. I, I, I like them. I like them. No, I like them for you. I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> they're good. Them? They're good. Yeah. My, my they're- primary care is outside of the network, you know, so but they, she, we're always in conversation. I like her because even during the pandemic, she's sending emails about how to um, how to manage you know, anxiety and stuff like she's so, you know, she, she does my energy reading, <laughs> you know, um, and so I, I, I had been with her for years and I really like her. And then the rest of the team is coordinated care through VCU health. I get, okay. I give them a lot of credit just because I, I, not just because I really do believe that they saved my life. Like I really don't think that had I, uh, had I been with another team, I don't know that I would have been here because they wouldn't have been curious. They wouldn't have cared as to why. They would have just been giving me medicine. And if we were just treating the symptoms, the issue would have continued and it would have gotten worse. And there I would be, you know. So, yeah. And then, and, and because they're, they're really cool because they listen to me. Like, like they called me like, I think you were out running. We saw some episodes. I'm like, who is watching me? Like, you know, I, I'm sad. That somebody was noticing because I wasn't paying attention to that. Like I mean, you know, I wasn't calling them, but um, that means that means also that they know me as a person. This mm-hmm. is what I think. This is what I know. Darlene does in the morning, and so I want to call and, and check in on her. You know, or they'll tell me things like that. Like I, we're working on getting you back on the road. That means they know me as a person and not just a patient. And that's, I think that's so important. I mean, we, if we've got things that we've got to manage for life mm-hmm. and we want to be, I mean, it's like being in a good marriage. You want a partner. You want somebody that you're like, oh, even on the days when you're annoyed, you're like, I'll still keep you around. Right? <laughs> like that's, yeah. if, if not, then it's just not going to work. And, and especially that, that, that idea of curiosity. Like, I love that. Like, mm-hmm. why is this happening? What's going on here? People that are willing to do that often are also coming into the space and not saying I already know everything. Yeah. They're, they're still willing to poke around and go, this is really unusual. Have you seen yeah. this? And maybe there's excitement for them professionally, right? Like this is I'm odd. Sure. Yeah. Let me exactly. see what's going on in here. Yeah. I, I love that. That I'm so happy. I'm happy to know about that team because, you know, without a good team, you don't feel like you got good backing and it's, nope. and it's, that's crucial. It's already hard to deal with. It's already a lot to deal with. 
hard. Yeah, I think hard is the right word. It's already difficult to deal with, but it's um, and it's a lot to deal with. So you want to have a great. You want to have the support system, at least in some places. You can't always can't always get all the support. Maybe that you ideal support that you want, but that support is critical. If I felt like I was going in and I was just talking to them and they weren't hearing me, I I probably would feel really hopeless. I think, but I, I feel hopeful because they are curious and you know and they want to know more. So so even if as things change because you know it never stays the same. Um, so one day you're like, this is great. And then you get a report and you're like, what? wait, I thought I was doing good. Like, you know, and, um, and then they're curious as to why. So it's like, we're going to do these couple of things. Like, I don't always have to be, I'm not always required to tell them what I want next. We have conversations out, you know, they're prepared for me to come in and say, well, this is what I read about, <laughs> you know, what about this? So, and that's good because you want to have a conversation. Yes, but you also, it's also lovely that they're paying attention. I mean, it is really like quite equal to a good, a good partnership, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I, I know you and I'm paying attention to what's going on and this seems a little different and we're going to figure yeah. this out. Like, how lovely. Yeah. Oh, yes, that makes me happy. We, yeah. you mentioned things being hard, which I, which I get. I'm mm-hmm. curious then, since it sounds like you've had to do a measure of pivoting. What are you doing for your own care? And I, I will hesitate on self care because I'm not talking. I really get on a, I get on a big soapbox about this, right? Because mm-hmm. I believe in this idea of self care, but mm-hmm. I don't believe in what's being pushed to us as it, right? Yeah. Like I'm never like, and I don't have anything. There's nothing wrong with getting manicures or pedicures or any of those sorts <laughs> of things, but there's a lot that goes into for me keeping me together and a lot of it is a lot more focused than than physical maintenance right mm-hmm. um you know kind of looking at it and and i would assume that you know i'm making assumptions we don't know i don't know part of your draw into running was that was that high that you get right those endorphins the way your body feels the way you're fed this kind of energy mm-hmm. what have you what have you found something not necessarily the same mm-hmm. something in the pivot to feed you uh, and to and to feed into the care that you're taking of yourself. Um, I, I, in some ways, I'm still looking for it, uh, for the the it. And I guess, yeah, I, I came to running from a trauma, right? So when I got into running, it was because I had been underemployed and unemployed for at that point, I don't know, two or so years, and I had had to move back in with my parents. And I had been using exercise as a way to pull these endorphins out and to stay up. But towards the end, I didn't know it was going to be the end of the unemployment. But towards the end, I guess I was slipping and my friend could hear me. Like you could hear it in our conversation. She says, we should run a 5K. Like you, I was like, running? I mean, (laughs) you can't think of anything else. Um, But, you know, she sent me the gift card to get some sneakers and I was like well this is something I can do and so I started training for this this 5k and I really got into running so when I say that I'm still trying to find the it see that was my it <laughs> you know that was my thing um and and now I'm um now I'm still working at so my my it I'm still working on but recently like during the pandemic 
And I think it, as the pandemic came about and we still in the beginning of our isolation, I noticed that I was kind of, my anxiety was ramping up. And I know it had a lot to do probably with the um, post-traumatic stress that came from the diagnosis. So I said, you got to find something because you're not going to make it through this, like, you know, this high strung. And, um, and that's when I started, I had practiced yoga before, but I was like, well, you know, my uncle keeps telling me and people, my, my therapist was telling me, you should try yoga. And I'm like, maybe I'll try yoga. But from yoga, I started meditating. And that has been amazing. Like just because what it's doing for me is putting me in the present, like something we were talking about kind of leading to before is this idea that you're worried about what happened in the past or you're concerned about what may happen in the future. Neither of which are in your control. One thing is over and you can't change it. And the other thing, you really don't know what it's going to do. So, um, so kind of bringing myself into, into the moment to, to, to chill out. So, um, so yeah, those are the two things. And then like we were talking about the visual art. When I find myself starting to really get like anxious or I've been looking at too much of the news, particularly mm. social media, mm. I'll pull out my sketch pad. And so my sketch pad has, and that's recent. Like I've always sketched a little bit here and there, but usually it would be from year to year. You know, I do a couple of sketches in the summer and then that would be the last time I looked at the book again until the summer. And now I've been, um, been using that as a way and 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 creating as a way of uh, as a tool i don't yeah i still but i still don't feel like those are my it like those those are tools <laughs> for, for right now right. um and i'm still i still feel like that there is there's still some pull with me with that like sometimes i'm like you should really get on your mat and, and i don't and, um and I'm like, maybe that's not the thing, but it used to be like, you should really go out for a run. And I didn't have to convince myself that much. Like, you know, and so the fact that I'm still kind of convincing myself tells me that I'm probably still trying to find that thing or find those tools, but these are working for now. Mm-hmm. It's, it sounds a lot like my husband's a jujitsu guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and which is, that's a little the, the geese get really full of sweat and they're really close to it's disgusting. It's really gross. But he <laughs> loves it. And for years I would have this conversation. He's had back surgery. He played football all the way through college. Mm-hmm. And he has he had four discs that were a little loopy. Two of them have had surgery and two they're predicting might need it in the future. It depends. Oh. Um and after his surgery he was off for a while. He was unbearable to live with. And so I have these conversations with him and I'd say, you know, you're, you're going to get older because that's what happens or you're not. Right. But if, if you <laughs> right. go the older, the older route, this might not be the best thing for your body mm-hmm. when you're 50 or 60 or whatever. So what is it that you're going to, what else are you going to look at? Cause that's his thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's his thing. And he's been home. We've been in the house since mid March. Yeah. Um, and has, has, he's done the same thing that you've done. This is okay for now. Okay. This isn't, this isn't really my thing, right? Uh-huh. He, he does, he does a couple of things. He's been running our young dog, um, cause she's terrible. We love her, but she's terrible. <laughs> um, and he's been, we have a spinning bike in the garage. So he spins oh, and, yeah. you know, he does a little yoga, whatever, but it's still not, you know, it's, it's enough to take the edge off. 
Mm-hmm. But it, he's not delighting in it. Because I was like, I wonder if she's done the yoga, because that's, that's my thing, right? Like, I get on the mat, and there's this suppleness that I feel when I practice mm-hmm. that I don't feel any other time. Mm-hmm. Um, I always feel pretty clunky in my body, actually. And so um, the practice is, is very freeing. And, you know, and it's one of the few times that I'm not only fully present, um, like, you know, just not mind running, but body and mind present, and then also mm-hmm. um, delighted in where I am, right? I'm not, I'm not making fun of myself. I'm not giving myself a hard time. Like, it's a really mm-hmm. good space. Um, but it's, you know, that's my thing. So I was going to mention that, but I'm like, you're already doing that. So I don't know. <laughs> um, I just, I do, I do understand. I do feel clunky on the mat a lot of times. Like, it's a big <laughs> problem because I used to feel like people talk about runner's high. I don't know if it was runner's high, but I, I did feel, I don't, and, and graceful is not even the word, but I just felt like I was. I could glide when I ran. I could get into a groove, which is why I like the distance running versus mm. order distances. They they were fun because they were a challenge in that way, but they gave me more anxiety than a di- Like if you told me run a half marathon, I would have felt okay. But if you told me a 5K, I would get much more anxious about that because that was <laughs> that was just different. I didn't you didn't you didn't have time to get into a groove right. in a 5K like you know. And so I like that ease of the groove. And, of course, all the other stuff. I mean, it's beautiful to run in the morning. You can see the sunrise and stuff. So I really enjoy the distance that way. Um, yeah, but but in yoga, I guess, yeah, I, I feel clunky still. And I think um, maybe maybe if I could find some grace in it, that would help, too. I'm finding some. Don't get me wrong. But I, I don't. And I don't know if it will become my thing, but it's like, like you said, it's, it's working for now. Yeah. 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 I think that, I mean, sometimes that's all we can do is just, you know, the for nowness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would assume, you know, even in that, you know, a tinge of grief too, right? Like I'm doing this it. thing because I can't do this thing. Right. Like, you know, and then it's, 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 you know, it's not as, it's not the same thing. I'm going to give you this example, though. Um, even though you never met him, mm-hmm. but after after we lost Harvey, we had we got a, we got a new dog. We were like, we can't not have a dog, right? So we mm-hmm. got this young dog. This our dog Solomon. We got him after after oh, Harvey, um, and and he's a he's a good dog, you know. And it took me a long time to not be just a little mad at him for not being <laughs> Harvey. You know, and then we have Phoebe, who looks like Harvey, only a short-haired version. Okay. Um, but she's also not him. You know what I mean? And it, but it's been a long enough time that I'm not looking at her and thinking, right. you know, wanting that replacement. Um, and even Naila, when we were thinking about getting another dog, she's like, we can't mm-hmm. get another dog that looks like Harvey right now. So we have Aww. a, you know, Solomon's a boxer. He doesn't look anything like him. Because she's like, I don't want to do that. But it took me a while, and he was. And he really loved on me too. He was like, "This, she's my person," you know. <laughs> He's like, "I really want to hang out with her." And I'm just like, "I mean, I guess I'll walk you and pet you because you need that." <laughs> but like, you're, you know, you're not my guy, right? Um, it feels that feels the same thing. I mean, you're, I hear you saying that, and I've heard Latif saying that, like, eh, you know, this is what I really want. This is what I really right. want to do, and this is what makes sense for me. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I get that. I definitely do. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you something about um, 
anything you want. I, I, I don't. I want to make sure that we talk about like anything that you've got going on that you want people to know about. You mentioned uh, a collection of some sort. I don't. I don't have the name of it right in front of me, but I think maybe you know. Oh, the Jonestown collection, maybe. Mm, see, we're <laughs> we're getting a, we're getting into uh, into dicey territory. We could talk about that. And you have like something an anthology that you've edited or I mean, fine. Oh yeah, which is it, it, that's a good segue because that's, we're talking about grief. And this, um, the collection is called Revisiting the Elegy in the Black Lives Matters Era. Mm-hmm. And I'm a co-editor with, uh, Dr. Emily Ruth Brother, Dr. Sequoia Maynard, and Dr. Tiffany Austin, who was a friend of mine and passed away. Um, so my experience with that, like I, I keep saying it, but it was true is that, um, as I was mourning kind of the loss of my running, so 2016, I get at the end of 2016, I get diagnosed. Um, 2017 um, was the year anniversary. June of 2017 would have been the year anniversary. No, June of 2017 is when I got the pacemaker and ICD, and June of 2018 would have been the anniversary. So Tiffany and I were supposed to be celebrating this, and mm. Tiffany passed away like perhaps a week after that one year anniversary. Suddenly. Mm. Um, and and that's when I came on board as an editor, essentially, and, and Dr. Maynard to take her place, essentially. So in the the editing of this book about elegy, I'm living out this elegy, you know, I'm living out the my own elegy because I'm looking at myself and I'm mourning this loss of the the self I thought I was as a runner, um, and then I'm mourning my friend's loss, the sudden loss. And she's not, quote unquote, ill, you know, and, 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 and is not sick. So I'm still here. So survivor's guilt, you know. Um, so, yeah, but the project itself, um, yeah, the project itself is really great. Like, it's a collection of essays as well as poetry. I ended up contributing poetry to it, a, a, a crown of sonnets that talks about how we survive in our bodies during this era. So we often have these hashtags um, and they become the elegies. So mm-hmm. there are going to be lots of, and currently are lots of elegies to, um, to George Floyd, saying that name right, and Ahmaud Arbery. Um, but we're not doing the elegy to the, the people who are left behind who have lost something. Right. And and the the people like I used to use this example with my parents, my father is Vietnam veteran and my my parents had been dating in high school, you know, and got married shortly after that. And so they, they have this long history or whatever. But when my mother talks about that man or that young boy that she met, you know, then I also know that I'll never know him because of Vietnam. So there's a part of me that grieves him. And and we've talked about this, like this won't be new to them. They hear it, you know, I grieve this guy. I like the one that I got, but I also grieve the one that didn't, that, that I never got to meet, that my mother met. And I think about that when I think about the elegy now, like that there are so many of us who are surviving, um, but we're not the same people anymore, you know. And this is not just the people who are close to those that we elegize. This is the people who are a little bit, um, our degrees of separation are a little further. You know, um, I'm not the same person in 2020 that I was in 20, I don't know, 12, 13, 2011 or something like that before 
we saw so many publicized cases um, in such rapid succession. Because I always tell my students, I'm like, I I know y'all didn't know this, but this is a continuum. This has never stopped. You're just seeing more of it because of this 24-hour news cycle. Uh, It's not because this is this is new. So yeah, that that elegy, um, that collection again, it's revisiting the elegy in the Black Lives Matters era. and yeah, and and editing it was for me its own elegy. Like I was existing as an elegy. Sometimes I say my body is an elegy, <laughs> um, because it it's it's still in grief, it's still in mourning, it's it's mourning a lot of things. You know, isn't there some some sense? I have that sense at least that. You know, being a black person in this country is to be in a perpetual state of mourning for something, you know, something is being taken from us almost every single day in some way. You know, even that death by a thousand paper cuts and all the little microaggressions that pop up, there's still, there's still so much loss in that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think about, gosh, your, your parents were high school sweethearts that I, I, yeah, I mean, they, they they dated other people in high school, but my parents got married at 20 and 21. Wow. So they had known each other since age 13. My father was a Virginian and moved to Virginia when he was 13. And um and that's when they met, you know, and they had this mutual crush as they tell the story, you know. Um but they 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 I think they they went to the prom together, but then they didn't date the next year. Like it's very typical high school, I have to say, you know, that back right. and forth. Um, but yeah, they got they got married really early and have been together now for fifty plus years. Not quite fifty five. I'm gonna get the number wrong, so I'll just say fifty plus. Um, but yeah. And I I think that's that's just interesting. I, I'm thinking about that the boy that left and didn't come back from the war. Right. Mm -hmm. But even over the course of their relationships, how, how each of them has changed, you know, I mean, and they're changing together. So it it may not be as stark, but there are all these parts and pieces in the course of a relationship of you that are just gone. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're just gone. It's, 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 you know, it's a memory or, you know, watching my kids, the kids are 19 years apart. You know, mm-hmm. my son has different parents than than my daughter did. Mm-hmm. There's just no, there's no way around it. We were idiots when she was when she was younger, right? <laughs> um, and things that we've learned, or just you know, good and bad. Like we're more tired than we were when she was young too. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, what are we gonna do with this kid? But like, even that, you know, as they start talking about their experiences as he gets older. Yeah, he's he's going to know, you know, drastically different people than she knew. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I don't know. If, I don't know which one of us has changed the most, but both of us mm-hmm. have changed a lot um, mm-hmm. over the course of things. Maybe Tiff has changed more than I have. I'm not really sure. I can't really <laughs> see it. Um, but just just different, very, very different people. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, if if we lived in a culture that gave us the space to have that kind of grief. Mm-hmm. And that that it was you know celebrated and not shunned that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be something to be able to lean into that and have a community 
that surrounds you in that grief, no matter if it is yours personally or if it is a cultural grieving, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. Um, I think we miss out on something without having that. Yeah. I think we're having that cultural grieving right now. At least one set of us. Yeah. 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 And it's, and it's, well, and I, I feel like all of it is, you know, here we are recording this in the pandemic. It is mid, essentially mid June. I've been, mm-hmm. say, in the house. I mean, I have left the house, but yeah. I've been out of my, my regular routine for three months now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in and of itself without, I mean, the pandemic is enough, mm-hmm. is enough to cause a need to grieve and, you know, and to, and to let things go and to let things move into a different, different way. I mean, we're going to come out of this very different than we did coming in, whether or not we want to, you know, it's, it's just the reality of it. It's going to be very, very different. Um, A lot of people are, you know, finding this, this hard stop helpful in some ways. I know we are in our house to be able to kind of get real clear about what matters, you know, to, to have the, have the time and the bandwidth to start a podcast. I mean, that's craziness, right? (laughs) Like all of these sorts of things to be able to do that, but to really look at our lives and go, all right, we need to do some things a little differently here. We Mm -hmm. need to make some things change. Um, but there's still that grief involved in it, in and of itself, without any, without any justifiable protests, right? Mm -hmm. Without any, Mm -hmm. without any rage, without any of those, just this, this virus is enough. For us to, to need to have a space to grieve what we've lost um, yeah. and to find out how it is that we move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree. There's a lot that's been going on in these last three months. 2020 has been quite a year. It, it's been ridiculous. The halfway point. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just made it. But well, me and my sister would talk about this three months in, you know, yeah. three months in. It was March that everything started to, to shut down, that, you know, that we saw this pandemic. Um, and and here we are three months later. And one of the things I told my mom, I was doing well, or I don't know if well is the right word, but I was doing OK, you know, with it um, and making my adjustments and so forth. But then it started to it has started to look indefinite. There was something about saying, well, when the summer comes mm-hmm. and now here we are in the summer, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm like, uh, this this doesn't look like it's headed for the changes that I thought like it doesn't. It's not that I thought we were going to go back to, quote unquote, normal. Right. But I didn't expect it to still be kind of like the situation that we're in. And, of course, the other stuff that has come about um recently so i am um so that's where so now i'm finding myself having to find some tools again because i was doing okay when i had this kind of definite in mind you know somewhere in june i'll go home and everything you know and now it's like i don't know if i can (laughs) um you know i need to so so yeah this is i i i'm i'm interested in a good way though of seeing what will come out of it when it's over. Because I think there will be a lot of positive things that will come. And I say when it's over, I should say when it doesn't look like it looks now, like when it looks a little bit more clear. Because I don't know that over is going to happen for a while. Right. Well, and I think over might be like years. 
Yeah, I think yeah, I remember the when the when the a lot of the epidemiologists, I think that's how you say it, epidemiologists, mm-hmm. you know, the the people, the people that study yeah, the people. things. Mm-hmm. When they were saying, you know, 18 months earliest 18 months for, you know, a vaccine to be ready. Um and I listened to that. Like that's that's my internal timeline. Mm-hmm. Because the rest of it felt like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, when it gets warm, it's going to go away. And I was like, well, how do we know that? If this is new, how can we say that that's going to leave in heat? And I've always heard that cold is better for viral things than heat. I was like, none of that makes any, that didn't make any sense to me. Um, and still, you know, and it was always, I always look at it and go, how smart am I? Fairly. And then do I know what they know? No. And so I never want to listen to anybody else that sounds like me when I'm talking, because I always sound like I know what I'm talking about, no matter what I'm saying. <laughs> I want to talk to the experts, and the experts have not wavered at no. all. They've at not said all. anything differently, you know, and, you know, and to know that, that we didn't have to do this. It didn't, we didn't have to, to do this. It's making me a little, that's making me a little more angry than anything else. It's like, we didn't have to go down this particular road if we had all kind of cooperated and listened to the people who know the thing instead of people like me that sound like maybe they know the thing or people that <laughs> don't sound like they know anything. And they still say things, right? And they're still saying the thing. Yeah. It, it, it's, it is that endless factor of it though. That just feels like, you know, I, I can't conceptualize what is, what would that be? 12 more months of this. Right. <laughs> I, I don't even know how that would be possible. And and our kid, I had I had this really lovely conversation, um, another another podcast guest about schooling. He, mm-hmm. he runs a uh, an independent school here in town. We were talking about like the idea of what what it might look like in August if and when the kids go back to school, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things mm-hmm. that he said it broke my heart. Um, he was talking about you know let's think about like the average five year old, somebody coming into kindergarten, if. They are, if we, you know, kind of stay where we are and they went home for quarantine mid-March, they come in August mm-hmm. in about five, six months. There's been, you know, a tenth of their life in quarantine. Wow. And I was like, holy cow. And, you know, he's like, think about that. What is, what's the equivalence? He's 45, 4.5 years of my life. That's, that's the energetic equivalent of what these children, I got a five-year-old in the house and I'm like, oh my yeah. gosh, right? Like how huge that is, um, and I don't hear anybody talking about that nationally. Talking about this this idea. I mean, we are all in some ways being affected by this, whether or not we want to recognize it or we can put words to it. Um, and it is a community trauma, which means in some ways that should be better because everybody should be shifting because we know that everybody's been impacted. I know people aren't doing that, um, but really being ready to kind of reemerge into our lives, you know, and say mm-hmm. we've got to move in a different way because people have been hurt by this mm-hmm. and we need to be prepared for them to be behaving like hurt people after this. Yes. Happens, you know, yes. I've been reading about um, particularly trauma informed teaching, you know, and, and what that could, could potentially look like in the classroom. Yes. What students may bring. But interestingly, as I was looking at it, I was thinking, and I, and perhaps it's because of the populations I tend to teach. I kind of teach that way as if I, I kind of like you say, I come in with the default that these students are likely traumatized by something in their life. 
And yeah. so I should approach them that way. I should approach our learning that way. Um, so that won't, that won't be terribly difficult for me to transition to. But then myself, I guess I don't always think about myself as being like in the classroom. I don't think of myself as being the traumatized one either. Like I separate myself from that and I have to remember that I'm also entering the classroom as a person who's participated and been part of this trauma, this collective trauma as well. So, um, so yeah, I don't know what that will, what that will look like in the classroom in the fall if there is, and there likely won't be, um, a classroom in the fall. Hmm. Um, but I did, I do know that it will be, it will be different. It should be different. Let me change that. It should be different. Right. Some things are not functioning differently yet. And I don't understand why people don't realize they need to. Like I was talking to my sister who does academic advising and their productivity model is the exact same as the production that they're expected to do when they're in office. And I said, that's impossible. Everybody's struggling. People have children at home that they're trying to teach at the same time as they're trying to maintain this job, as they're trying to just keep everything together, you know, um, going to the grocery stores of production. Whereas before you just say, oh, man, I forgot a tomato. I think I'll just run and get a tomato. Right. And we don't do that anymore. This is, I mean, and that while that seems like a really small thing, the idea that that is part of the production of your life and that is part of that trauma is like, how do you expect the productivity model to look the same if, in fact, everything else is so different? <laughs> right. And, any, you know, and a lot of people are, are a lot of people are still working in those okay. ways, in, in those conditions. Um, and and if people, you know, this is a cautionary tale between mm-hmm. me and you, right? Until other people hear this, if people aren't making plans, one, to, to take the valve off of anybody that they have any direction of, right? I don't, I don't want to say that you're, you know, necessarily in charge of, but if you supervise people, if you work on a team, even, even if you're not the lead, but anybody that you're mm-hmm. with, your family, your coworkers, your friends, in any spaces that you can, if you're not looking to, Take some of that, take some of that pressure off of people in any way that you possibly yeah. can and not expecting for people to show up, maybe not at their best right now, right? Not only, you know, in the future, but right now, because people are working under extraordinarily stressful situations, yes. um, in the middle, of, in, in the middle of being fearful. There's a, mm-hmm. you know, a tinge of fear. This isn't like, it's not like, when I was a kid, it was like the Africanized bees were coming, right? It's not like you can see this and go, that's, that hive doesn't look like a regular beehive and you can steer clear of it. Go the other way, yeah. This is, you know, everywhere and not everywhere and it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you could have it and not know, right? Yes. Like this is, this is, it's for the, for the mind, it's too much. Like we can't process that. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to just take our regular lives and try to plump them into your house. That's <laughs> just it's just ridiculous. Why would any why would anybody look at that and go, that's a great idea? You know, for, for kids or for adults. Um for adults, yeah. You know, because yeah. we're all human and it's just not you know, it's not right. We were talking about it early on because uh-huh. people are like, the kids are gonna be behind and I said, Who could they be behind? Everybody's home. Right. There's, there's, they <laughs> all they're gonna all lose a little bit of something, you know, mm-hmm. and and so our goal has been mostly to try to figure out a way to, to, to care for his nervous system and ours, right? Like how can mm-hmm. we make sure that 
he's not depressed or he's not too anxious or he's not whatever. He's pissed now because he's like, I need you to take me to see my friends. Yeah. And these are the people I want to see. And I don't want to look at them on the screen because he's had some video calls. He's like, I don't care about that. I need to play with him because you guys right, don't know right. how to play. Right. <laughs> I'm like, okay, all right. I you know, telling one of my nephews who is 21, I mean, grown, and he's like, I just wanted to, to get to hug someone, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, um, so physical touch, like, like your son is saying, you know, I, I want to be able, and I was thinking about that. I was like, I haven't, I don't touch people anymore because I'm not around my, it's like my friends, I don't go see. My family, I don't see, you know, so I don't remember the last time that I touched anyone. And, yeah. um, I mean, it's definitely been at least March, you know, um, so, so yeah, yeah, this is, this is going to be different. And then, and, and so I think of him, but I also think of my older sister who is, um, a very touchy person, but also lives alone and, mm. and she's, um, you know, she's dealing with that. Like she'll she'll say it, but I'm sure like she kind of says it in passing. You know, I'll be glad to hug you guys. And we kind of laugh because everybody we always laugh about her hugging. You know, like she does gives you big bear hugs and and everything. But also to understand that that is a trauma mm-hmm. that she's going through. This is something that she's lost. You know, all of us have lost something, but this is specific to her and and her loss and and. Yeah, we're all going to be, we are all currently dealing with it, but we're certainly going to be dealing with the, um, the after effects, um, long beyond whatever, however long this lasts. Yeah. And I'm ready. I want people to be prepared for that, but I don't, I'd have to say I'm not terribly optimistic because they don't seem to be behaving in such a way that they understand it right now. You know, like you were saying, like, and and I was kind of alluding to this idea of the productivity model and you should be producing. And I'm like, people are just in survival mode. Right. They know to eat, they know to sleep, you know, they're, they're surviving. So this idea that we should ask them to do anything beyond that is, is really um, irresponsible. Well, and I wonder too, I mean, for some people, you know, that produce, 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 and that push for it, is because it, it hurts their bottom line financially. So that's going to be, you know, for some people, that's going to be their drive. Mm-hmm. For other people, they don't recognize it, but that's their own stress and trauma response is to oh, run yeah. and do things and, you know, try to make things happen so that I don't have to be still and realize I'm really deeply uncomfortable right now. Right. <laughs> so all of these folks are in and all of this, all of this space just responding as they as they should, right? You're supposed to respond to stressful situations in a different way. But the prolonged aspect of it, I think it's going to have, they're going to be, you know, mental health mm. ramifications, but also physical health ramifications if people aren't really doing things right now to help themselves yeah. stay as even as they possibly can because your body can't put up with that kind of stress for too long. It's just, no. you know, I mean, it's yeah. killing yeah, it's killing our community already. You know, it's yeah. you know we were already having those problems. So, you know, I don't know. I, I just I don't have I have a lot of thoughts and not any answers about all of these things. Right. You know, right. and and not like anybody's calling me and saying, you know, <laughs> "Tell us what, what you think about this." You need to know now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, is there let let 
tell me how people can find you if they're interested in tapping into your work, um, into seeing what you're what you're up to. Um, I keep a website. The website is predominantly about my art, so my literary, my literary art, my writing, as well as my visual art. And it's my full name, DarleneAnitaScott.com. Um, yeah, that's the best place to get in touch with me because from there, also, if you're interested in following me on Twitter, I, I don't say a lot on Twitter, but I, I talk sometimes, but I'm not one of those people that's constantly on Twitter. But you can certainly follow my Twitter account from there. My Instagram is predominantly my artwork as well. So, you know, you can you can follow my Instagram by going to my website and you'll find those um, those social media outlets. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure that I put all the URLs in the show notes. So if people are okay. listening, they can head over for the show notes and, and find everything and click around. Um, there's some cool stuff going on on your site, too. So if, if you are listening, make sure you head over DarleneAnitaScott.com so that you can see everything that's happening. I appreciate you. Thank you so, so much for coming and, and chatting with me and imparting some of your wisdom and all that good stuff. Yes, thank you for having me. Nice. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that we were able to do this. It has been far too long. Let's not wait yeah. another 20 some odd years, however long it's been. We won't do the math. <laughs> and a couple of emails, right? It's just, yeah, it's, it's been just a little, just a little while, just a small bit. A All right, we're going to sign off here. Okay. Thanks for joining us this week on Your Life After. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of our patrons. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so you'll never miss out. Information about becoming a patron, show notes, and transcripts from today's episode can be found on our website, wsw.center slash your life after. That's wsw.center slash your life after. Or just go to the homepage and click podcast from the main menu. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. Be peaceful. Thank you.